that uh, Dr. Godfrey gave one time was redemption planned, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, and then redemption preserved. And we're in that last section on it being preserved. So we talked about how it was planned from all of eternity by God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. It was accomplished in space and time in particular through the life, death, resurrection, and obedience of Jesus Christ. And then it's applied to us uh, through the Holy Spirit, primarily through the means of grace. And then that is preserved as well. So it's not planned, accomplished, and applied, and then eh, hopefully it'll work out in the end. It's also uh, preserved for us. And we recognize that uh, Dennis Johnson once said that assurance is a stimulant to good works, not a sedative. So sometimes the backdrop of what we're even going to talk about today is that people thought if you teach everything we looked at last week or if you teach what we teach about assurance, that it'll make people lazy, it will make them inert, it will make them arrogant in their salvation, one or the other. We want to say that it ought not to do any of those things. Actually, that recognizing who we are in Christ and the assurance and the freedom that we have is actually the stimulant for us to go out and do the things that he's called us to do. It's not a sedative to make us inert or lazy or in any way to make us arrogant. We recognize that God saves to the uttermost. He doesn't just bring us partway and then count on us, but he saves us fully from beginning to end as Hebrews teaches And the Catholics had launched the Counter-Reformation, Roman Catholics, um, questioning fundamental things that were being taught in the Reformation. And there's a guy, a man named Robert Bellarmine, from, he was alive in 1542 to 1621. And he said that the principal heresy of the Protestants is this, assurance. You would think maybe he would say justification sola fide, Or he might say, you know, our belief in uh, Scripture alone rather than Scripture plus tradition. But he said that this is the major heresy of the Protestant Reformation is to teach this kind of assurance. Because they were teaching that it was faith plus works and that you have to go back to the treasury, that there's a treasury of merit that you have to contribute to and build into to to see whether you're going to be able to stand within the last day. So they were really concerned about what the reformers were teaching. But as we recognized last week, that this is fundamental to who we are. And as Pastor mentioned in his sermon, we want to start with the idea that we're regenerated. That you have been given a new heart. When Pastor was talking about where does this wisdom come from, or where does this desire come from, or where does this longing come from, it comes from God. It comes from you had a heart of stone, and you were given a heart of flesh. You were dead in Adam, and now you are alive in Jesus Christ. You have been reborn. You have been regenerated. We need to do a a really good job in our circles to make sure that we talk about the reality of regeneration. And you can never be unregenerated. You can't lose your regeneration. You have been born again by the Spirit of God, and He dwells within you. And then we also recognize that we're redeemed. We can talk about that generally in terms of our justification, and that's Christ for us. He died on the cross for our sins, in our stead, in our place as a substitute, and he also lived a life of perfect righteousness in our stead, in our place as a substitute as well. But there's also something that we're renewed. 
that's not only Christ for us, but Christ in us. And that we are being conformed more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so those things, like understanding them and their fullness, helps us with understanding what we talk about when we talk about assurance. Because you could see the argument that if you teach all that, right, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then hey, I don't have to do anything. I can just do whatever I want. That actually sounds contrary to one who has been born again, but you get where people would make the argument, then it'll just make you lazy, it'll make you inert, you won't care, or you're going to be haughty thinking that you're doing all these wonderful things on your own. And yet the scriptures and our confessions never say any of that. And so let's look at what the Canons of Dort says. We'll look at, we'll just read a couple articles and a rejection of errors, and then we'll talk about them. Just addressing this particular issue of everything that we talked about and the goodness of our assurance, recognizing that it ought not to and it doesn't make us lazy or inert. It is a stimulant to good works, not a sedative. So let's look at Canons of Dort. Head 5, Article 11, which is on page 914 in the hymnal. So Article 11, 12, and 13 will read. It says, Meanwhile, Scripture testifies that believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh, and that under severe temptation, they do not always experience this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. But God, the Father all comfort, does not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear. But with this temptation, he also provides a way out. And by the Holy Spirit, revives, them in, revives in them the assurance of their perseverance. So this is recognizing, right, that the difference between the reality of our assurance and the experience of our assurance aren't always the same thing. You are assured. Sometimes we feel, subjectively, more or less confident in that assurance. It waxes and wanes. It grows and decreases. And sometimes it's based on the things that we do. It recognizes here that in this life we have various doubts of the flesh and under severe temptation they do not always experience the full assurance of this faith and certainty of the perseverance, but God. So it's recognizing the reality of the Christian life. Am I the only one in here who has ever struggled with the assurity? Am I? I hope someone else in here has so I have somebody who can identify with me. Uh, that's exactly what it's talking about. Like we have more times of more or less confidence. It doesn't make the assurance any less real, objectively, but it's recognizing this side of glory. We're not who we were, but we're not yet who we're going to be in glory. And during this time, between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming, as those who have been reborn but not yet glorified, we have doubts, we have trials, we have temptations, we do grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but he never leaves us or forsakes us. We're always his. He's not taking up temporary residence to see how we do. He's taking up permanent residence, and he is conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. And then the canons goes on to say, this assurance of perseverance, however, 
And this is getting to the arguments against what we were saying. So far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive, a sedative, to a serious and continual practice. I mean, a stimulant, sorry. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive, a stimulant, to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. And that's what we're going to look at in a second. This Scripture says this, and we can look at the examples of the saints. So Canons Adored is directing us, hey, these two things affirm this. The word itself and the testimony or examples of the saints throughout Scripture. And then Article 13. Neither does the renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after a fall. So this is somebody who's been walking with the Lord and has a significant fall, and the Lord restores them. Think of King David. It's not saying it puts them on a path to be assured or um, lax in any way, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord, which he prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they may maintain the assurance of their perseverance, lest by their abuse of his fatherly goodness, the face of the gracious God, for the godly, looking upon his face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death, turn away from them again with the result that they fall into even greater anguish of the spirit. And then turn two pages over to the rejection of errors. Number six, and so all of these things are kind of framing up what we're talking about. So the rejection of errors six says, having set forth the orthodox teaching, the synod rejects the errors of those who teach that the teaching of assurance, of perseverance, and of salvation is by its very nature and character an opiate of the flesh and is harmful to godliness, good morals, prayer, and other holy exercises, but that on the contrary, to have a doubt about this is praiseworthy. For these people show that they do not know the effective operation of God's grace and the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and they contradict the Apostle John, who asserts the opposite in plain words. Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we shall be has not yet been made known But we know that when he is made known, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2-8. Moreover, they are refuted by examples of the saints in both the Old and New Testaments, who, though assured of their perseverance and salvation, yet were constant in prayer and other exercises of godliness. So all of that's kind of setting the frame for what we're going to talk about here. That Christianity properly preached is teaching us to become more of who we are, not to become something that we're not. It's framing it up from the very beginning. You reckon, for those of you who are here, the very first time we got back into the Canons of Dort, I used the example of Pinocchio. And that Pinocchio 
in the Disney version of it is a block of wood and a blue fairy comes and sprinkles some dust on him and he kind of has a little bit of life. He's kind of alive. But the blue fairy says, if you're brave, if you're true, if you're honest, and then you'll be a real boy. That's how most religion works, right? Just a little bit of grace to get you going. But if you do all of these things, then you will be saved. Then you will be a real boy. Christianity properly preached is the opposite. The Holy Spirit comes at the very beginning and says, you are a real boy. You are a real girl. You are made alive in Christ. You have been forgiven. You have been declared righteous. You have been adopted. The starting gate is real boy and real girlness. And now, do the things that you're called to do. Be who you are. You're not going to become something you're not. You're going to be more of what you already are. You're a new creation. You're part of the new creation. You are engrafted onto the vine. You are part of uh, God's family. You can never to lose that status, not to do anything to earn it. It's not a reward at the end of life. It is a gift at the beginning of life, that you are his now and always. And that is a stimulant for us. Go and do those things which you are called and created and gifted and equipped to do as part of the new creation. Does that make sense? All right. So then we want to look at several passages of Scripture and then some examples in script of, of saints in Scripture that kind of lay this out for us. Yeah. I think so. I don't know of anything in the Roman Catholic Church that would have altered that since the Counter-Reformation. Do you know of something in particular? Okay. Yeah, I don't, not that I know of. Um, you can, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at a lot of texts, so keep your Bibles handy. First John 2, starting in verse 28. It says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we will be when we obey for X amount of years. Right? I don't think I read that right either. Thank you, Bob. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him in as he is. 
Right? This is that principle. We are God's children now. We are made so by a gift, by the gift of regeneration, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who made us his. And then this is really kind of framing up. This is who you are now. You are God's children now. What you will be in glory has not yet appeared, but you will be made like him and you will see him as he is. This is like the assurance that this is who you are now, this is what you will be, and you aren't that yet, but you're in the process of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and preserved in his salvation. So this is text is kind of highlighting some of these things. We are divinely begotten, we are reborn. And being reborn is as irreversible as your natural birth, right? We're adopted. And as children, we reflect the character of our parents. Are you what you will be? No. But when he appears, you will be like him. That's a promise. That is assurance for us. That's a stimulant for us. Okay. In the craziness of life, in the craziness of my own struggle with sin, I can rest assured knowing I am his. I'm not yet what I'm going to be, but I will be. And I will see him as he is, and I can move forward in faith, running the race that God has set before me. And so there are several other passages of Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, the first four verses say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from, the dead, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's a question that Paul was anticipating, right? After the gospel that he preached, people could say, well, that all just sounds good. Why don't we just continue in sin? How can you? You can't continue to be what you were because you've been regenerated. Something definitive has happened. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you have been made alive. You can't continue on that same path that you were. How could it be? And what he's saying is that you were raised to a newness of Christ in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by his glory, that we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus didn't just die to redeem us. He also died and lives to renew us. It's part and parcel of our salvation. Justification, as wonderful as it is, isn't the whole of our salvation. We get Christ plus all of his benefits, which includes our sanctification, which includes our glorification, which includes our preservation. It's marvelous. Everything that we've needed, he has provided. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And let's read this verse together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the canons of Dort isn't making this up out of whole cloth. They're basing this doctrine on the scriptures. By grace you have been saved. This isn't your own doing. It is a gift of God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a stimulant to our good works. You could use it as a says, oh, he's done all this. I don't need to do anything. But it misses that reality of, oh, I'm alive. You are a real boy. You are a real girl. You were created to go and do these things. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Right? Over and over and over what God is doing in those who are his, those who are his sheep. Turn to John 15. Specifically in this passage, Jesus is talking to the disciples. But by way of implication and application, it's true of all disciples. But in the context, Jesus is specifically referring to his disciples. But John 15, 16, and 17 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It's an amazing reality to think about. We didn't choose God, but he chose us and appointed us that we should bear fruit and that that fruit that we bear should abide. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And what are some of the things that we ask of the Father? Every week in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're asking him to continue the good work that he's begun in us. We're asking him to continue to renew us in the Holy Spirit. Until we see him face to face. Until we're changed in an instant. Turn to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verse 6, and then chapter 2, 12, and 13. So Philippians 1, 6, and note the confidence of the Apostle Paul here. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, right? The Apostle Paul is confident that he who did this is going to do this, and is going to do this, and is going to do this, and is going to glorify you. I'm confident, I am sure, that he who began this is going to bring it through to completion, He planned your redemption, he accomplished your redemption, he is applying your redemption, and he will preserve your redemption. He saves to the uttermost. And then look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, I love that word, beloved of God, 
As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my absence, but much more in my presence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's one of the things that really trips people up, right? Particularly if they just take part of the verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what Philippians is saying is work out, not for your salvation. Work it out. You've already got it. So now as a real boy or real girl, work out your salvation. Work out the things that God has called you to do, whatever that might be. Certainly there are some things that are true for all of us, but none of us are called to be the Apostle Paul. So in your calling, as a wife, as a husband, as a mom, as a dad, as a worker, as whatever, whatever it is God has called you to do, work out those things, not for them. It's not if you do these things, then you'll be saved. You already have salvation. So you're just working out the life that God has already called you to and created you to in Christ. It would be tragic if you had to work for your salvation. That's the Pinocchio version. That's the Pelagian version. That's the Roman Catholic version. That's the Mormon version of salvation. If you do all of these things, then you'll be saved. The Reformation's coming save. You are saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Now work that out. Manifest that. Manifest the fruit. Be who you are. Not be something that you're not. You are holy. You are clean. You are forgiven. You are washed. You are regenerated. They're not goals. They're not achievements. They're gifts. And they're yours. Turn to 1 Peter 5. First Peter 5, starting in verse 6, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You hear how these things come to us. We are called to do things, but again, not for our salvation, but from our salvation. Humble yourself. Call on him, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist, firm in your faith, knowing that you're not the only one who suffered these things. There's no Christian who nobody else in the world can relate to. Nobody's ever gone through that. There's similar things that we've gone through together. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. One of the professors at school often talks about what we sometimes talk about, the indicatives and the imperatives in scripture. The indicatives telling us who we are and the imperatives telling us what to do. 
And you'll notice he, he calls it a tennis match in Scripture. <laughs> How they just kind of go, well, here's the indicative, and then the imperative, and then the indicative, and then the imperative, just going back and forth across the net because they're intertwined. This is who you are. Don't hear the imperatives of the Pinocchio version. If you do this, then you'll be these things. Hear the imperatives of you are these things. Now be humble, be watchful, resist, flee. Sure of this, that he who began the good work will bring it through to completion, that he will never leave you or forsake you. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Does that make sense? Galatians 5.22, which you're all familiar with, says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How lovely if we looked like that. That's what our Savior looks like. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And it's not just some of those. This is the fruit of the Spirit who has been given to you. We grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. Hebrews 13, turn there if you will. This is a great benediction. Benediction means good word. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's children said, Isn't that lovely? This is what the canons are driving at. Of course, this doctrine or this teaching could be abused or misused or whatever, but it's meant to be a great comfort to us. The God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus and you, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through who? Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory now and forever. So after hearing some of these things, right, does assurance produce carelessness? Does it produce laziness? Does it produce aloofness or indifference? Sometimes. It does in us, but that's the problem with us, not with the doctrine or not with the reality of it. Do you care when you sin? Do you have a godly sorrow for sin? Those who know the joys of salvation also know the pain and the sorrow and the regret and the loss when they displease the Father. We have built into our liturgy every week a time of confession, corporately and silent confession. We'd prayed the week before, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. But this week we recognized, as we live between the tick of his first coming and the talk of his second, that we didn't do all those things. And the Holy Spirit's the one who produces that sorrow in you. That godly sorrow that says, Father, forgive me. I repent. A godly sorrow that recognizes this is a sin against the Lord and against his word and against my neighbor in whose image they were created. Beloved, we can lose the joy of our salvation. 
but we can't lose our salvation. We can lose the joy of our salvation through our sinning at times. That's what the Canons of Dort is saying also. In Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 and David 31, what, 32, 31 to 32, when David's lamenting his sins, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Imagine the adultery and the complicity and murder and all the lying that went on there. All that didn't make him not God's, but it really jaded the joy that he was experiencing with his life with the Lord. And so he's praying, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He recognizes that joy is lost. I know my parents, neither one of them were big spankers. Thank goodness. But... I was more hurt and crushed by knowing that I disappointed them than anything else. But they were still my parents. They didn't disown me. You're no longer a Tedrick because you did X, Y, and Z. No, my parents disciplined me because they loved me. The Lord disciplines you because you love him. Your father can be grieved, and the Holy Spirit can be grieved, but he's still your father. He's still the Holy Spirit. He's still your savior. You don't lose that. You don't lose your regeneration, but we recognize that when we actively participate in sin, or we're unrepentant, or we're shaking our fist at God during those particular seasons of our life, we recognize that we don't really have that joy or that same experience, but we've not lost our sonship. Of course our Father's displeased when we sin. Of course the Holy Spirit is displeased when we sin. But He's still our Father, and He's still the Holy Spirit. And He even uses things in our life to bring us back, to conform us, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to godly sorrow. Sometimes it's a severe mercy that God will bring about in our life to do that. But He will do that. Is it pretty clear from Scripture that this doctrine is taught? Any questions about any of those before we move on to examples from Scripture? Yeah. Um, I don't have a hard time believing this for myself, I guess. I have a hard time when I see Christians that I, or people that I call Christians, um, leave the church. Sure. Sure. No, the great question. I think one thing that we want to say is the purpose of all church discipline is ultimately for reconciliation. We recognize that people wander and we want to, as good shepherds, seek to go after them as best that we can. And the hope of any church discipline, the hope of any discipline is reconciliation. We also know that sometimes people go out from us because they aren't of us. They may have looked like it or acted like it, but they weren't. The weeds and the wheat grow up together in this age. That won't be the case in heaven. So we recognize that they grow up together, and sometimes we can't always tell the difference. Sometimes I think we're also taking a snapshot of somebody's life versus a motion picture. And if you take like a snapshot of someone's life, you could see them in a time of, 
you know, relative peace or relative obedience, or you could take a snapshot of their life and it's just a mess. And we really want to think of their life more as a movie, a motion picture, an epic film. And where are they on that trajectory or their journey? And we recognize that some people are walking away. And are they walking away who are believers and just stumbling in sin and the Lord needs to restore them? Or are they apostatizing from the faith and they never really were of us? Sometimes those things are difficult to distinguish. We're still called upon to pray for them. We're still called to reach out to them. We're still called to bring the warnings of walking away from Christ, the reality of what that means. If you stomp on your birthright, you're saying that I no longer want Christ. How serious is that? And we have an obligation to tell people about that and to warn them of that. While we're also telling them about the sweetness of the gospel, because it's the goodness of God that leads people to salvation. It's the goodness of God that does this. And there's a difference between someone who's struggling with the sin, stubbornly, and someone who's outright rejecting Jesus Christ and saying, I don't believe that he's the son of God. I don't believe he rose from the dead. And the church needs to wisely try to and patiently work through those things. But we have an obligation to warn people. And it is tough when you're looking at those cases in, in particular. It is a good reminder for us to continue to pray for those on, who are under discipline from this church or other churches, that the Lord will turn them like he did with David or like he did with others as well. And also, it's meant to sober us up a bit. Hey, be careful. Take heed lest you fall. Don't follow their example. Um, so it takes a lot of wisdom, but it is kind of tricky to know sometimes which are the ones who are wandering and just seriously sick and struggling and which ones aren't really of us. Is that helpful? Somewhat, not really. You can say not really. <laughs> Does anybody else have anything to say about that? I know some of others of you have thought deeply about this. It's a really good question. There's only a couple minutes left. Just from the examples of Scripture, maybe this is a good thing to do this week, is just think about people from Scripture. And did, they, did you find their assurance of who the Lord is, something that stimulated them to good works or that led them to laziness? Like Noah, to build an ark for all those years, knowing who the Lord was and what he promised? That was a stimulant to good works, not a sedative. Abraham and Sarah, I mean, you could take a picture of any of their lives, right? And recognize, that's what I'm saying. If you took a snapshot of their life, you could look at any of them on their worst day and say, what a disaster. Exactly. And that's why Jesus came. But also, as those who are part of God's family, as those who are part of the elect, you also see the fruits of faith in their life. Moses, um, also, you know, think of all the things that Moses did assured of God's promises, assured of who he was, assured of his holiness, assured of his salvation, the God who had revealed himself to him. Rahab, David, Daniel, Peter, John, Mary, Paul, I mean, just any of them. You recognize that their faith in the God of promise and the promises of God is what stimulated them to good works. And so I'm not saying, don't compare yourself to them. If I don't do the same things that Noah did or Paul did, then I'm not a Christian. 
Now, you have a different calling. You might be a teacher. You might be a dean of students. You might be an accountant. You might be a landscaper. You might be in the military. You might be whatever. It's not saying you have to do the same things that they did, but they looked to God and they walked their life by faith. And that those things, recognizing that was a stimulant to their good works, not a sedative to it. They didn't rest on their laurels. They didn't say, oh, it doesn't matter how, can you imagine Paul saying, well, it doesn't matter how I live? Or Moses or Peter? But none of them would have said, sung a hymn, how great I am. (laughs) They're saying, how great thou art. So it wasn't making them arrogant. Paul never thought, oh, look everything I've done. He could say, I ran the race that was set before me. But he was looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of his faith, Jesus Christ, any of them. They wouldn't say, look at me. They'd say, look at the Savior who I'm, who I'm serving. And it was the Savior that was the impetus for everything that they were doing. So it's meant to be a stimulant, not a sedative. Who was it that said I had a lot? Was it Larry, was it you who said I had a lot on the board? At the very beginning, yeah, you're right, I didn't get through it. Larry was prophetic. (laughs) So I will close by reading that. uh, Benediction again from Hebrews. It says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.